Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. All right, what's going on, everybody? How are we doing? Doing good? Okay, hey, look, my name is Cole, and if you guys haven't had a chance to meet me, I'm uh, new here. Um, And so come say hey, come grab me, say what's up. I'd love to meet you guys. I'd love to connect with you guys. Um, Yeah, so welcome. Welcome back to Oxana. Welcome back to a new semester. So uh, we're going to get right into it tonight, if that's okay with everybody. We're going to just dive right in. So Matthew 23, we are in the woes to the Pharisees. And so uh, we are starting a series that we've entitled Rebuilding Religion. And the whole aim and direction goal that we have behind this series is to see what Jesus has to say no to and what he has to say yes to about religion and the mutated form that it can take when we try to take it in our own strength. All right? He we are going to analyze some pretty harsh words, right? Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 are some of his sharpest, some of his most cutting, some of his, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Jesus just said that words, but we're going to go line by line, verse by verse, and try to see what word Jesus has to us. And so if you know the Pharisees, right, if you know the scribes and the Pharisees, or if you've been around church, or if you've read the New Testament, um, really at any length, right, you know that the scribes and the Pharisees are Jesus's, like, historic enemy, right? They're like the big bad guys, the boogeymen of the New Testament. And the reason that Jesus always is getting in confrontations with them, it conflicts with them, is that they have a problem with him. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, right? They're the pastors, they're the theologians, they're the really smart and important people, and they are the ones who have cornered the market, so to speak, on what religious life looks like in Israel. And so Jesus is always coming up at odds against them. And so as we begin to unpack a little bit about what this idea of rebuilding religion entails, I think we have to start with the motivations and the desires and the things that contribute to the way that the Pharisees and the scribes uh, feel about their work. And so we'll do a fun little exercise, okay? Can everyone just like close our eyes for just a second? Yeah? Okay, imagine you are a scribe or Pharisee, right? You have all these clothes on. You don't quite know what they signify or represent, right? You're sitting up in a high chair. You got a big scroll, right, that you're reading from. You are in charge, right? You're the guy or the gal, right? You're in charge. And what we know about the motivations and the desires of these scribes and Pharisees, we know that as the leaders, these are the ones who are tasked with teaching the people what it's like to love and worship and serve God. They are the ones who are tasked with uh, the knowledge, imparting knowledge in order to aid the worship of God in the religious life of Israel. And so you can imagine the stress and the anxiety that goes into that, right? At every corner, you are reminded that you think you're in control, but you're really not, 
right? Every corner you are reminded that you live under an oppressive system of government that takes half of every dollar you make to pay soldiers that will hang your neighbors on crosses. You're reminded at every corner that though you might think you can worship freely together with your people, you really can't. There is a system of government that is suspicious of any form of religion that doesn't bow to the uh, pantheon of pagan gods or submit to the cult of the emperor. And so you can imagine the stress and the anxiety that these pastors, these theologians, these important people feel, that you feel, right, in leading God's people in extreme circumstances. And so if you're familiar with your Old Testament, if you're familiar with the whole breadth of the Bible, you know that this is not the way that God intended for his people to live. You guys can open up your eyes now. I see some of you guys having your eyes closed still. Uh, My bad, I forgot. Um, (laughs) Just really getting into it, everybody. But so, but if you know your Old Testament, and if you know your scripture, you know that within the narrative and the story of the Old Testament is this cycle of God's people being close to God, observing and keeping his law, but then there's a departure, right? There is an escape from faithfulness, and as a result, the people get disciplined by being exiled into different places, by undergoing different hardships. And so if you're a Pharisee in this time and you look around and you see the cultural context of you are swimming in all the time, you know, man, this is not right. What can we do? What can we do to correct and fix this situation? See, the scribes and the Pharisees have built a religious life around anxiety, around this anxiety of exile, this anxiety of losing it all. And so as a result, they are working hard to make sure that everybody does the right things. They have created a system of forced faithfulness, of rigid observance, of keeping every letter, crossing every T, dotting every I of God's law. We know from historical research that the Pharisees have barricaded around the, God's, uh, the commandments, right? The Torah, God's law, all right? And what I mean by that is they have gone further than what the law requires. They've set up these other rules around the commandment so that you don't get even close to breaking God's law and as a result, suffering more exile, being removed from Israel and suffering more oppression from the Roman authorities. They have built a religion around this anxiety of exile. And this is the exact system of religion that Jesus wants to tear down. This is the exact reason why they are always at odds with one another. See, Jesus is like the annoying like rock in your shoe. Right? When you run a marathon or something, you're just like, oh, dadgummit, get this thing out of my shoe. Right? Or the gnat that's like flying around your face and it just keeps coming back. Right? Or the ringing in their ears that is constantly reminding them that though they think they're protecting these scribes and Pharisees, they think they're protecting God's people from breaking God's law. But what they're doing in actuality is barring God's people from enjoying the life in his word. They think they are protecting people from breaking his law, but they're barring people from enjoying life in his word. And so the woes, right, these pronouncements of judgment, these mournful 
sayings communicate a deep sadness that Jesus has. This is not the way that things should be. And so these are judgments on the one hand. These are things that Jesus says, this form of religion will not stand. The way that you guys have organized this system is messed up. And it won't stand in my new kingdom when it comes. But in that no, he also brings out a yes. This is not the way it's going to be. This is the way it will be. Okay? He's simultaneously tearing down the facade of the thing that we have ruined. And he's building it back up again based on the foundation of himself. Foundation of God's word. And so we're going to get into it tonight. We're going to uh, kick off, so to speak, right? And we are like really in it, right? If you guys thought you were going to like have a real fun, chipper, fun, you know, exciting message, like, I'm sorry, this was Jacob's idea. Uh, (laughs) But I am excited, right? And I am eager to see what God does as we unpack this word together. So Moving on into the first point, right? So Jesus sets out to pronounce judgment, the things that he says no to concerning the Pharisees' work. And he does this in three primary categories. He identifies that the Pharisees have, have pledged themselves to three forms of uh, workings in their uh, ministry, so to speak, that Jesus is saying this is not how it's going to be, right? So the first thing they have pledged themselves to is a system of fake results, The second thing being a system of false relationships. And both of these contribute to the third thing, which is they have a total misunderstanding of who they are. They have a fake identity that is not tethered in any sort of reality. So look with me in Matthew 23. We're going to look at verses 2 through 5. There Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. See, because the Pharisees have this anxiety of exile... Because they feel that the stakes are so high in the job that they've been entrusted with, they have let those things contribute to this sense of justification. We really need to like bump our numbers up in here so that we can earn this favor with God. We really need to have these inflated metrics, right? We really need to just like get the bike pump out and just like, let's go, pump this thing up, right? So that we can prove and earn that we're doing a good job. Right? That's the bottom line of what this idea of fake results is all about. See, they want the results without the actual work. Right? They want the magic pill that can fix everything, but doesn't actually require you to change your lifestyle. They want to put the work on other people and take the credit. See, they're all show and no substance whatsoever. And we know this based on those funny two little words, right? You got the fringes and the phylacteries, right? Anyone heard of that? before, maybe not, right? And what these things are is these are worn symbols, right? So if you guys like played sports in high school or whatever, like we used to get stickers on our helmet for like achievements that we do. Imagine you like break into your coach's office and steal all the stickers and you just like load it up, right? You're not actually that good, right? Or at graduation, right? Like you get these tassels that designate like, you know, how many, 
you know, great points are in your GPA, right? It'd be like going in and like just ordering a bunch on Amazon or whatever and be like, yeah, I'm awesome, right? That's what this idea of the fringes and the phylacteries are trying to capture, right? They have extended the length of these things. They have broadened the scope of these things in order to reflect something that's not true about the work that they've done, right? Did you really lead 20 Bible studies last year? Did you really disciple 100 people? Did you really preach at all the Sanford Sundays you possibly could, right? Are you enlarging some of these things in order to justify why you're awesome, why you're cool, why God has chosen you for a certain task over somebody else? That's what Jesus is capturing here. That's the religious fervor that he's trying to disseminate. See, this is the trap that ministers and leaders and pastors and servants and teachers and all these people can fall into, right? We can get so busy teaching other people how to love and serve and enjoy God that we don't do it ourselves, right? We can get so busy leading a Bible study that we don't actually spend time in God's word. We can get so busy and think we're so awesome because we teach others how to pray, but we don't pray ourselves. See, this is the temptation and the trap to fall into fake results, right? To say that, it's my job to teach you how to be a human being in God's world, but then I'm barred from experiencing that life myself. And so what is the judgment that Jesus pronounces on the Pharisees for their fake work? See, it's easier to load up another person with a bunch of do's and don'ts and send them off into the world to live a life Right? as a living sacrifice on your behalf so that you can be justified by how much effort you've put into that person than it is for you to live as a living sacrifice yourself. But the pronouncement of judgment that Jesus makes is that if you don't do that, if you withhold your own individual relationship to God, well, then you are, miss you are the one that's missing out. You are the one who is not deriving the life from God's word. You can hide in your devoted service to God, from God. And by doing so, we harden our hearts and we make it, uh, <clears throat> we set up a system of spiritual blindness that we can't see out of. Okay, are we having fun yet? <laughs> fake results. Moving on, fake relationships, looking at verses six and seven. The Pharisees, the scribes, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace, being called rabbi. The scribes and the Pharisees are into the game of political posturing, right? They like being seen with somebody in order to boost their self-esteem, right? They're looking at people through the lens of, does this person give me power? Does this person establish my credibility? Does this person, being seen with this person, shaking hands with this person, having lunch with this person, does this increase my social clout, if you will? But the curse is, or the judgment is, that Jesus says is that if this is the way that you are mediating and moderating all of your relationships, right, just like King Midas, y'all know, like the Greek guy, everything he would touch would turn to gold, right? If you're looking at your life and your relationships through the power of does this person bring me status or coolness or whatever, then you soon find that you can't be filled. You soon find that gold doesn't work in our digestive system, right? And you realize that this 
pursuit in and of itself is a trap. This idea that I can establish myself outside of God's purview by securing for myself these relationships that really don't mean anything is actually a way of living into a curse. If you're always on the clock, right, if you're at dinner with friends or if you're going out to hang out somewhere, if you're just going to the grocery store and you're constantly thinking about how you're being perceived or how you're making your life look, then you are enslaved to the spiritual blindness that Jesus is teasing out here in the scribes and the Pharisees. They love the place of honor at the feasts. They love being greeted in the marketplace. Looking back at verse 7, they love, or verse 6, excuse me, they love the place of honor at feasts. They love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. And they love being called rabbi. And this is the last point. They have contributed, this spiritual blindness has contributed to this fake identity, this false sense of self. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they love the dependence that other people have on them. They love the importance that they hold in the eyes of others. They believe because they are awesome at their job, that they are you know, achieving these high stakes with their awesome metrics, that they have shook hands with the right people, that they have garnered up this faithfulness enough to where now God is obligated to bless them and their people, right? This has twisted their view of themselves so much that they can't see others and they can't see and understand themselves correctly. This word rabbi is an Aramaic word. It means teacher, right? Most simply, but it also can mean great one or doctor or your excellency for us, you know, King James people, right? It is a title of self-importance. And it communicates that idea that we are fulfilling a need for another person. And so the Pharisees are blinded by their own seriousness. They are very serious people. You cannot make fun of the scribes or the Pharisees. In fact, God himself is grateful for the work that they have done on behalf of the people. These people cannot see themselves outside of their role as leader, as teacher, as <clears throat> helper for the people they've been called to serve. And so the question that I think Jesus is calling us to consider this evening and it's a question that I have been thinking about all summer, right, in a lot of ways, is we see all these documentaries come out, right, these pastors who have these horrible moral, moral failures, of these people who are given charge of leadership, right, and who abuse that. The question is, like, man, do people go into ministry, like, just eager to, like, ruin people's lives? I don't think so. And so the question is, what changes, what takes someone who is eager to serve? What takes someone who is excited about the work that God is doing in the world and tricks them, deceives them, and mutates that desire into something gross, something nasty, something wicked and horrible? And I think Jesus is circling that idea right here. It's this idea that if we begin to get high on our own supply, so to speak, right? We begin to believe our own hype. If we begin to elevate ourselves over and against our brothers and sisters, well then, that's a dangerous place to be in. 
And so what Jesus is doing here at the end of this section is he is showing how these leaders, these shepherds are what Ezekiel will call the wicked shepherds. And if you can take it all the way back to Moses who's uh, constantly, or excuse me, Matthew is constantly drawing connections in, in his gospel back to the Exodus and Moses story. And he's showing how these leaders have become like the Egyptians. These leaders have become like Pharaoh. These ones have become oppressive and have become evil who have become wicked to their own people. And the point is to show that Israel is in such a place where they are now in the seat of bad guy. They are in the seat of bad guy. Great news to start off our first Oksana, right? But Jesus offers an alternative way, right? What Jesus says no to in that he pronounces judgments on these workings of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says no to if you want to commit yourself to this life of ministry, then you will experience the bitterness of a hard heart the loneliness and anxiousness of an isolated life. Or you will experience the spiritual blindness that comes with being not tethered to reality, not tethered to God's word. But the way of Jesus and what he says no to and what he says yes to is an easy yoke, is a light burden. So Jesus is dismantling this anxiety of exile that is motivating the Pharisees and scribes to operate in this way. And he is replacing it with a truth about our reality. He's replacing it with the truth about who he is, who God is, and what his work in the world looks like. You have one teacher. You have one instructor. You have one father. And any grabs at self-important titles are a lie against the way the world actually is. And so as we Move into the second half of our time. We're going to look at the second half of our passage. We're going to look at verses 8 through 9. Excuse me, 8 through 10. And we're going to see Jesus' way, his alternative path, his alternative vision of the kingdom of heaven begins with three things that his disciples must lay down. Three grabs at self-importance that his disciples must sacrifice if they want to walk in this way. All right, and so the first one we find in verse 8, he says, You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. So Jesus gives his prohibitioning, and then he lays out his reasoning, right? So the prohibition is, don't let anyone call you rabbi. Don't let anybody look at you as this superior moral teacher, as if you're elevated above other people. And the reason being is because, well, you have one teacher to start with, and two, you're all brothers. So we'll look at each pack of that reasoning right now. So disciples are prohibited from letting the work that they commit to God be the foundation of their identity. Jesus is saying that his disciples are prohibited from letting the work that he has entrusted to them be the thing that they look at as the basis for their relationship with him, right? So is Jesus saying, like, you, if you're, like, studying education or whatever, Sanford, UAB, wherever, right, like, you need to, like, change your major because you can't be a teacher anymore? I don't think so, right? But I think what Jesus is grabbing at is this idea that you can be a teacher 
You can serve, you can commit yourself to that low level of humility and service of others, but the minute you start to think of yourself as the teacher, as the moderator of truth for someone else, right? The guy or girl who needs to be served by others, I think you're in the wrong. You can be a teacher who serves, but you can't be the teacher who is served. In fact, uh, Frederick Bruner, he's a New Testament commentator, commenting, and he's an expert and master in the field of the gospel of Matthew. And he notes at this point in this verse that Jesus actually only commands his disciples to teach once in the entire gospel of Matthew. There's only one command that Jesus gives to his disciples to teach, and it comes in Matthew 28, right, which we all know, the Great Commission, right? Go therefore into all the world, making disciples, teaching them what? Teaching them all that I have commanded you. So Jesus' teaching instruction is such that all other teaching must submit to his lordship. Jesus' life and his teaching are the basis for our rule of life, but it's also the basis for our interpretation of all other teaching, right? And we have a lot of teachers in our life, right? We got a lot of musicians. We got a lot of podcasts. We got a lot of things that are constantly forming us in our mind about what we should think about the world, what we should think about reality, right? From John Calvin to Joe Rogan, right? We need to let all of our teachers submit to the teachings of Christ, Do we know the teachings of Christ enough to submit those things to him? The reality is, is that all teachers are grasping at reality, right? They are trying to capture what they observe in the world and communicate that to other people. But in Christ, we have reality himself. We have the full image and picture of God. Everything must be submitted under his Lordships. So that's the first reason, right? You have one teacher. The second reason for why we shouldn't be called teachers is because we are all brothers. I'm reminded of uh, high school. I don't know why, but you guys ever read like Lord of the Flies? You guys have to read that in high school? Um, I hated it at the time, but it has been uh, something I think about weirdly. Like I go back to it and just like dream about Lord of the Flies, pig head on a stick kind of thing, right? And so William Golding, he wrote Lord of the Flies in the 20th century, right? 1900s. And his whole goal with the book was to comment on another piece of writing that had come out that said, hey, if we could just eliminate all of these ideas that have baggage, if we could just eliminate all of these structures of power that exist that oppress people, right? If you could just like, in theory, put a bunch of kids who haven't been tainted by the world on an island in the middle of nowhere, they would build this wonderful, beautiful, amazing utopia, right? It would be this awesome progressive vision of just like the good life, right? Everyone's drinking their coffee, having a good time, right? It's awesome. But William Golding, the author of Lord of Flies, is like, I don't necessarily think that's exactly what would happen, right? And so he writes this whole story, right? These kids are on a boat, they get shipwrecked on an island, and what happens, right? Rather than build the utopia vision of society, right, they descend into savagery. They begin to assign classifications of worth based on what people can contribute to the islands. They begin to create these imaginary power structures that justify mistreatment of some of the other kids. This continues to spiral downward more and more and more until ultimately it ends in the death of one of the, the weaker kids. 
And they're chanting and cheering and going crazy. And it's just a gnarly picture until what happens? Until the rescue boat captain steps on shore. And in that instant, in that moment, this game that they were playing fades away. When the adult steps into the room, they are in awe of their commonality. They're taken back at the savagery that they had descended into. See, in John's gospel, in chapter 3, verse 19, he says that Jesus is the judgment who has come into the world. When Christ steps into the world, he is the light that comes on. It's like the switch has been flipped. And so all of these things that we have committed ourselves to, all these imaginary structures of power that we use to justify mistreatment of our brothers and sisters are done away with. They're revealed as child's games that have deadly consequences. And we are in view and equal before one another in view of the one who has come into the world. I'm reminded, I mentioned earlier, I've been, it's been like the summer of documentaries for me. I don't know why. Um, I watched a couple weeks ago the Redeem Team documentary. Did y'all see this one, right? So it's about USA basketball, right? I'm a basketball guy. You know, I'm not very good, but I like to play sometimes. Uh, it's about USA basketball, right? And so the Dream Team was this amazing Awesome, right? Like Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, like nobody was beating them. 1992 Olympics, right? They kicked everybody's butt. They won the gold. And from then on, like USA was like top dog for like the next 20 years. But then the United States got complacent, right? They started sending out their best players and they started losing. And so in order to correct this, right, they rallied up the troops. They got the best people, right, like LeBron, Dwayne Wade, like all these awesome guys. But one guy that they got in particular was Kobe Bryant, right? And so a little bit about me. Grew up in Southern California, right? My dad is a huge bandwagon fan, so of course we were Lakers fans growing up. And I loved Kobe, right? Loved Kobe, right? I cried when, he, when you know, it, whatever. But anyway, loved Kobe, Right? And the thing you have to know about Kobe is that he was insane. He's crazy, right? He was consumed, right? And the documentary makes this point that he was consumed with one goal and vision and mission in his entire life, and that was to be as good, if not better, than the greatest, you know, player in his estimation, right? If you're a LeBron guy, I'm sorry, but Michael, he wanted to be like Mike, right? And so Kobe was like no friends. Right? The documentary made it very clear that Kobe had no friends because he was consumed with this anxiety of being the greatest. Every interaction he ever had was always looking at an angle of how can I get the edge on you? Right? How can I one-up you? How can I supersede you as the greatest? But one of the cool things about the documentary that it draws out is that at this point in his career, Kobe had recognized like, I'm probably not going to be as, as good as Michael Jordan, right? Bummer, join the club, right? Probably not going to be as good as Michael Jordan. And when he admitted that, when he came to terms with that, he was probably not going to be the greatest ever. What happens? He started making friends, right? He started getting along with guys a little bit better, he started to play cards. He started to hang out. He started to crack jokes, right? He started to become accessible. See, when he admitted his ordinariness, he was able to engage and enjoy his commonality 
with others. When he admitted that he was not going to be the greatest, he was able to actually enjoy the people that were around him. And the same is true with us in this text. Jesus is calling us to admit our ordinariness, right? There is a burden that comes with being the greatest. There is a burden that comes with constantly feeling like you have to prove yourself and how awesome you are. But if you can admit, I'm not that special. Well, now you are free to enjoy the people that God has placed around you. And the irony is, is that the moment that you do admit that, the moment that you do embrace that level of humility, well, now you're able to actually imitate the one who is the greatest, right? And this is what the doc goes out to show. Man, the minute that Kobe said, I'm not the greatest, right? He actually improved. He got better. He was free to imitate and mimic what made the goat really great, which is that he made others better. And that's the lesson that we have right here, right? That's the, that's the message that Jesus is trying to show us is that, man, when we admit, when we recognize, when we see that there's only one person in first chair, when we recognize there's only one person in the seat of honor and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, well, then all of our attempts at self-elevation are revealed as silly, right? Only when we recognize that Christ is Lord over all, can we go from the anxiety and the isolation of leadership to having friends in low places like our, our man, the man, Garth Brooks tells us, right? So only by humility, only by imitation can we actually engage with God who is the greatest. So call no one your teacher because you have one teacher. Move on, verse nine. Call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. The idea of religious fatherhood goes back, uh, it's prevalent today, but it goes back all the way into the Old Testament. See, God is the one who fathered the nation of Israel. And so his delegates, his mediators, his priests were the ones who were charged with this representation of his fatherhood to the people. And we do the same thing today. We look to our leaders to bear this relational, this emotional, this temporal weight that's really not proper for them to bear. We look to our leaders to be this heavenly fatherhood for us, who can answer our call whenever we need, who can be that person that we go to when we're feeling sad or anxious or whatever. But I'm telling you right now, the weight and the burden of heavenly fatherhood is not meant to be placed on your earthly brother or sister. The weight of heavenly fatherhood is not sustainable. That person cannot bear that load. It will crush them and it will wound you. It will crush them and it will wound you. And what is the reason? Why do we opt in to making fathers on earth? And I think the reason is, is that we have a insecurity with the knowledge and the trust that we do have a father in heaven. We have an insecurity of actually believing that there is a God out there who has his best intention for me. There is an insecurity that we would rather make someone who is flesh and blood, who is tangible, who's someone that we can go to, that we can call on the phone without realizing that you can pray at any time, right? You can open up God's word at any time, right? We have a father who delights to give us good things, who won't, when we ask for bread, give us a snake. See, I think what Jesus is saying here is that friendship with God and Christ is the easy road 
is the easy yoke. It's the light burden that leads to life, but avoidance of God in whatever form it takes. Whether you're avoiding God in your leadership by leading other people and not having to actually take personal responsibility for your own spiritual life, or in a leader. If you've abdicated that responsibility in yourself and are looking to a leader to be that thing for you, right? Avoidance of God is the thing that actually will make us a Pharisee. Friendship with God is the easy yoke that leads to life. Avoidance of him is the thing that makes us twisted. All right, and as we wrap up, verse 10. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. So this one, this prohibition is similar to the first one. It's similar, right? Teachers and instructors have a very similar role in our society, but this word instructor is based on a Greek word that means to lead the way. To lead the way. Don't call anybody someone who leads the way for me, right? And what Jesus is referring here to is those things that we think are going to lead the way for us, whether that's a person or an institution or something that we look to if like, man, if I could just be around that guy, right? Or if I could just read that book, if I could just sit under that person's teaching, if I could just be discipled by that professor, right? Then my life would make sense. Everything would come out right. I'd be all good. We all have this tendency within us to look for the person who will lead the way. What Jesus is saying to us is that there is one person who can lead the way, right? All of these institutions, all of these people, they overpromise but under deliver. They can't actually deliver on the good life for good, but there is one who can. The true instructor, right? The Christ, who is the one who is speaking to them in this text right here, right? It's Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. There is no other way, there is no other philosophy, there is no other hope that will ultimately satisfy than the way of Jesus. And so we look to teachers and fathers and visionary leaders to give us a hope for a future, right? And it, the reason we do this is because it's easy to set our hopes on an earthly person and justify ourselves in that way. But what Jesus has set out to do in the woes is deconstruct, if you will, that whole notion. He wants to tear us away from the efforts that we level for the things that we think will make us happy and satisfied. And he lays out a new vision for the kingdom of God. And he does it succinctly in verses 11 and 12. He says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The way to greatness is imitation of Christ. The way to be satisfied, the way to have this anxiety of making your life come out right and be awesome and be good for good is the way of the cross. Jesus says if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. You have to lose your life and trust that you will receive it again. And so when we make decisions based on this anxiety of exile, of making everything come out right in our own strength, when we go the way of self-preservation, we are hurting ourselves. We are contributing to the brokenness that we see, but Jesus has an alternative way. His invitation is simple. The burden of the crowd is heavy. And the burden of the Pharisee is heavy, but the yoke of Jesus is light. 
His way is easy and his yoke is light. And so there is good news this evening for both parties. There is good news for the crowd, right? If you are burdened, right, with human teachers, right? The crowd no longer has to submit to these rulers as if they are the ones who are responsible for their spiritual benefit, right? They, don't have her, they no longer have to submit to the teachings and the rulings of oppressive people. They no longer have to look to people for emotional support. They no longer have to put their hope on a person to lead the way to life because in Christ, we are all capable and qualified to make decisions in partnership with God's word and in keeping in step with his spirit. Each and every single one of you, y'all don't need to listen to a word I say as if it has any bearing on your life, right? I'm here to serve, but at the end of the day, right, it is your decisions, your partnership with God's spirit, your devotion to his word that's going to carry you. Not what any teacher says, right? It's you and your responsibility and your partnership with Christ. And this is a liberating good news. You don't have to wait on somebody. You can enter into that way now. But don't miss this tonight. It's that Jesus' woes are also good news to the Pharisees. No longer does the Pharisee have to suffer the burden of anxiety. No longer does the teacher or the leader have the responsibility of making everybody's life come out right. No longer are they isolated and lonely at the top. No longer are they blinded by their own misconception of reality, right? The alleviation of this anxiety is given because God's life and blessing are cheerfully already given to us in Christ. You don't have to make things come out right anymore. That's God's job. He's going to make that happen. And so the good news tonight of God's justice and mercy, and as we continue to unpack this in our series of rebuilding religion, right? What is God tearing down? What is Christ building up again, right? The good news is that Christ has destroyed the burden of partiality. We are all sisters and brothers, right? The crowd and the Pharisee together are one in his kingdom. And so tonight, as we reflect, as we enter into this 120 seconds, man, maybe you're a Pharisee tonight. Maybe you're burdened by the anxiety of making your life work out. Maybe you're troubled by the choices that you've made. Maybe you are living in a high-stakes world. Maybe if you fail, everything will come crashing down for yourself and for others. Or maybe you're a member of the crowd that Jesus is addressing. Maybe you've given over the reins of your spiritual life to someone else, and man, you're tired of people bossing you around and directing you the way that you should go. Maybe you've tired of being under a hard driver. Maybe you've been taken advantage of. And maybe you have an anger that you can't rectify because you know you'll never get square with that person. Man, whether you're a Pharisee or part of the crowd, there is a third way. Come to the way of Jesus. Pursue friendship with him. Friendship with God is the easy yoke that leads to life. Avoidance of him is the path that leads you to Pharisaism. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word is not always easy to hear. 
Your word is not always a soothing balm to our soul, but God, it is the thing that gives us life. Sometimes your word is like a surgeon's scalpel. Sometimes it cuts us open. Sometimes it leaves us bleeding and hurting, but God, it is the thing that fixes us. And God, we pray that as we continue to unpack this series, as we continue to look into your words, as we look, continue to hear from you, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear beyond our selfishness or beyond our misconceptions of what this world is, Lord, beyond of what we conceive of ourselves outside of you. God, I pray that you would help us to repent. God, would you help us to believe? Would you help us to trust or that you are making all things new, God? So Lord, we love you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano Podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.